Now, would you turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're skipping over chapter 6 because it's on the same theme as our last study on the subject of money. So uh, I'll leave you to read that for yourself when we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. So Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so it is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversary, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I find, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I find, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? Man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Amen. 
and we know God will always bless the reading of his own inspired word. A few years ago, I went into the First Trust Bank, and there was a big promotion for student accounts for those heading off to university. And uh, the tagline for the advertising was, I spend, therefore I am. I spend, therefore I am. Well, the intention was to appeal to the intellectual snobbery, I assume, of the university student. Uh, and it was playing on a phrase coined by the French philosopher Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Now, whoever thought of that uh, slogan for the First Trust Bank needs fired because I think most undergraduates have never heard of Descartes, never mind his philosophical approach. Philosophy to the average man in the street, to the average student at university, and to the average Christian in church is time-wasting, navel-gazing, seeking to answer questions that no one is asking. You've all heard of the philosopher who was a, an agnostic, dyslexic, insomniac who used to lay awake at night and wonder if there was a dog. I'll take that, give you a moment for that to drop. Um, well, that's our typical impression of philosophy. But philosophy is simply the investigation into the principles of life how we think about life, how we understand life, what sense we make of life. It comes from the Greek word, which means a lover of wisdom. Now, that's Solomon's theme here in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Uh, wisdom is the subject, philosophy of life. That's what he's looking at. That's what he's considering. Philosophies that were popular in his day and are still popular in our day. Uh, look at verse uh, 20, uh, 25. This is the key to the passage. I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Now, heart in our society is the seat of the emotions, but in Hebrew thought, it was the seat of the intellect. It was the mind. And so the NIV translates it, I turned or I set my mind to understand wickedness. Uh, how uh, do we understand the wickedness that's all around us? What is its meaning? How do we make sense of it? How do we explain it? How do we explain Lucy Lebby, that nurse that's uh, charged with killing seven babies and attempted, uh, attempting to murder seven more? How do we understand the rationale, the mentality of a suicide bomber who straps explosives to his uh, body and boards uh, a bus in London? How do we understand the results of the midterm elections in America, where in spite of the red wave that they were expecting, the Democrats still hold a majority, and their first thing is to uh, uh, introduce a, a, a bill on um, uh, respect for marriage, which, uh, as we know, is uh, a bill to protect uh, homosexual marriages, and their intention is then to introduce legislation that will codify road uh, fee wage. How do we understand Oma, Enniskillen, 
Fred and Rosemary West, Adolf Hitler. Why is it that men who were intent on murdering policemen now sit on a board overseeing the activities of policemen? Why all this wickedness in the world? That's the question that the preacher that Solomon is trying to answer in Ecclesiastes 7. And he's not simply asking why, but he's asking how. How do I react to it? How do I respond to it? How do we understand it? What is our philosophy, our wisdom behind uh, that explains all the wickedness uh, in the world? Now, he does that in an unusual way. He road tests three or four philosophies of life, three or four ways that people respond to the wickedness around them. Now, it's not an easy chapter, and uh, I have labored over it for uh, many hours trying to make sense of it, uh, and uh, there's much that I don't understand. So you'll bear with me as we seek to unpack the gist of these verses. But as we do, I want to ask you then, how do you understand life and how do you explain the wickedness in the world? So the first approach then to this wickedness road tested by Solomon is pessimism. Now, pessimism is the philosophy that says, well, evil's there, evil will always be there, evil will triumph, so you can't do anything about it, so you just get on with it. There's, there's no point, no future. This world is wicked, and wicked it will remain. Look at uh, chapter 7 and verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning and to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made uh, glad. We're not expecting this. We think, did I just read that? He begins with a, a good name is better than precious ointment, precious perfume. All the restaurants have nice smells, but it's not the smell that pulls you in. It's the, it's the name of that restaurant, the reputation of that restaurant that attracts you. And then suddenly, like a punch to the solar plexus, he says, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. My great, death is the great um, taboo of the 21st century. If sex was the unmentionable subject in the Victorian period, then death is the unmentionable subject in our day, just go to a funeral and everybody will talk about anything and everything but the one reality that confronts them, that people die. And so the great obsession of the 21st century is the putting off of death. That's why people join the gym. That's why people invest in exercise equipment. That's why the vitamin industry is a billion-dollar industry. That's why private health insurance is one of the fastest-growing sectors in the U.K., People do not want to die, or they don't want to think about death. As John Don the poet wrote, Ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. No one's going to ask, no one's going to inquire, uh, because that's one question we don't want to face. Am I going to die? And the Bible, of course, would have us face up to the reality of death. That the day of our death is something that needs to be prepared for, as the psalmist says, teach us to number our days. But that's not what the preacher is saying in his opening verses. 
He is saying the day of death is better than the day of birth. He is responding to this problem of wickedness in the world, and he's saying better to leave the world than to come into the world. You hear that all the time. I I don't want uh, to bring a child into this world. What type of prospect will that child have? What future will they have? Sometimes I wish I'd never been born at all. Now, that's the pessimist speaking. That's how he responds to the wickedness of the world. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. We're all going to die anyway, so why even try to explain what wickedness is? And it's a pretty morbid person that enjoys a, a funeral more than a party. There's a man in Bangor, and he attended every single funeral that he could unless they clashed with another funeral. And he wasn't an undertaker. He, um, he, he would look through the spectator, the local paper, and he would find out when the funerals are. And uh, I asked him why he came to everyone. He says, I enjoy them. But he was, he was miserable. Solomon says in verse 3, Sorrow is better than laughter, for the sadness of face, the heart, by the sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Here's a man who is happiest when he's miserable. And when he sees other people miserable, a sad face makes the heart glad. He loves misery. Now, there's a lot of people that respond to the wickedness of the world in that way. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Better to see a coffin than a cot. A funeral is better than a birthday party. And we have to say that the pessimist has a point. We look at around us and all the hurt and harm and pain in the world. It's not um, that difficult to get depressed. You worry about your children, where they are, where they're going, what they're up to, because you realize there's a lot of wickedness out there. It's a big, bad world. There are many dangers, pitfalls, and perverts. We want to protect our children from them. But pessimism leads to despair, and as a philosophy of life, It gives rise to melancholy and depression. A sad face, verse 3, may be uh, good for the heart, but it's certainly not good for the spirit. Pessimism. That's the first explanation for wickedness, or I should say rather response to wickedness. The second is what we might call escapism. The escapist deals with the wickedness of the world by never facing up to it. This is sound of music, theology. When the dog bites, when the bee stings, when I'm feeling sad, I simply remember my favorite things, and then I don't feel so bad. Hitler marches into Austria and returns it to the Reich, and what does Maria do? Well, she thinks about raindrops and roses, whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with string, and then she doesn't just feel so bad. Now that's the escapist speaking, not facing up to wickedness, but running away from wickedness. And that's what Solomon deals with in verses 6 to 10. Uh, look at verses, uh, sorry, 5 uh, to 10. Look at verse 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot is the laughter of the fools, this also is vanity. You know, 
when you light a fire, you don't begin with the, the logs or the coals. You begin with kindling sticks. And in the ancient world, they used thorns as kindling sticks. And kindling sticks were put under the pot to be then replaced by, by wood, more, something more substantial. But there was a lot of crackling with the thorns. There's a lot of noise that sounded very much like laughter, but the, the thorns kept you warm, but they wouldn't heat your, your meal, kept you warm for a while. It didn't last. And he says laughter's like that. That's the rationale behind the entertainment world. We will pay millions to comics, to footballers, to pop stars, to actors to take our mind off the harsh realities of life. Entertainment is a form of escapism. The uh, big comedian with the cheesy grin who uh, cracks a few jokes and reads out a few text messages from other people's phones. BBC will pay millions to keep him. This is why the stars of Friends in episode 10 were paid $1 million per episode for their performances because it's a way of uh, escaping the harshness and the wickedness of the world. You know, in Comic Relief, Lenny Henry went to Africa and he was surrounded by malnourished children and there was this flood of complaints to the BBC. We didn't pay our license fee to see Lenny Henry surrounded by misery. His job is to divert us, to take us away from misery. There's escapism through Uh, laughter through nostalgia. Look at verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. A hankering after the, the good old days. That's what people want, isn't it? You prefer to escape the harsh realities of life by taking a holiday in history. We look at the past through rose colored glasses. Our memories are selective. We highlight the good and we filter out the bad. We glamorize, romanticize, and sanitize our history when we think of the past. I remember. I remember when it was safe to let your children walk home from school. I remember when you never heard of some homosexuality. I, I, I remember when you never heard of divorce. I I remember. And we wistfully long for the days of long ago. But were the days of long ago really that good? We long for the, uh, some of us at least, long for the days of the Puritans. As a Baptist, I would have been put in prison during that period. We long for the days of the Victorians. When children were either going down mines or going up chimneys and the upper classes were the only ones that had exposure to university education. The days of the early church. Wouldn't it be great to get back to the days of the early church when homosexual, uh, uh, homosexuality was right, when all of the emperors of the Roman Empire, bar one, was at least bisexual if not homosexual? When instead of abortion they practiced infanticide and the baby was brought before the father and if the father gives up, gave the thumbs up, the baby was allowed to live thumbs down, the baby was thrown into the street either to be picked up as a slave or left to die. 
so much for the good old days. Do not say, says the preacher, the former days are better than, they, uh, than uh, uh, these. And then he speaks of escaping through wisdom in verses 11 and 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of those who have it. You know what people say? All you need is a good education. If you have a good education, your future is secure. He says wisdom, like money, is a shelter. It gives uh, you something to fall back on. It's, it gives you security. It provides social mobility. But then in verse 14, he says good and bad days are made by God, and there's not a thing that you can do about it. Verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversary, consider God has made one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. You don't know what the future holds. So you think by education you'll be protected, but you don't know, he says. You don't know what's been planned by God in the future. Now, we have skipped over a lot of these verses, the, the middle section of these verses. But, but that's how people try to deal with the, the harsh realities of life. They, they try to escape, to bury their head in the sand and not face up to the harsh realities of life. When we were at Alex's wedding in Germany, I went out for a walk every morning and we were passing these houses and there were these little sort of two-inch square brass plates outside so many of the houses and some of them had four, some of them had three, some of them had seven. And I thought there were indications of utilities being in the house. There was some kind of marker. But um, these were indications where Jews were taking, taken out of those houses during the war and put to death. And um, we went to Worms, you know, where Luther made that great statement, and the same thing, all these hundreds and hundreds of brass plates outside these houses. And I'm, I'm sure ordinary, decent German people knew what was happening during the war but they buried their head. They said nothing, and they let it happen. I was just reading recently about the White Rose Movement in Germany where a young brother and sister Christian couple, the age of 21, 22, lost their lives for lifting their hand against the Nazi regime. But this kind of, well, there's all this wickedness in the world. We can do nothing about it. Let's just escape. Let's have our holidays. Let's put on a cheesy smile. Let's just get on with it. So in, then we have the pessimist. We have the escapist. And then in verses 15 to 22, we have the, uh, the cynic. Now, in these verses, uh, they're probably the most difficult in all of the chapter, but the key to understand them, I think, is, is in verse 15. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doings. In this meaningless life, I have seen uh, both of them, a righteous man perishing in his righteousness, 
and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. I have observed life, he says. Life under the sun, and there's a, there's a good man, and he died. And here's a wicked man, and he lived. And that is one of the great mysteries and problems of life, that God allows wicked men to prosper and righteous men to fail. How do you explain that, he says? Why is, is it that the good suffer? This man is not a pessimist. He's not an escapist. He doesn't try and run away, but he faces these issues honestly. And he's a cynic. He's cynical uh, spiritually. He's cynical emotionally. And he's cynically, cynical intellectually. Notice, first of all, he, he's cynic, uh, cynical religiously. Look at verse 16. He says in verse 16, Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now, some commentators take this uh, to mean, well, don't be overly righteous. Don't be like the Puritans. Don't be uh, exact about righteousness. Don't be pharisaically righteous. Don't go beyond what Scripture demands with all your petty rules and regulations. But I don't think that's what Solomon's saying because he, in verse 17 he says, don't be overly wicked. So you can be a wee bit wicked. Just don't be overly wicked. He is looking at life from a worldly perspective. The cynic comes and he says, the righteous die young, the wicked live long, so just keep a balance. Not too righteous and not too wicked. Don't be overly righteous in case you make yourself miserable, and don't be too wicked in case there actually is a God. Just keep a little there and a little here. Just be balanced in it all. And that's what most people think. I remember when I became a Christian, my father coming to me and saying, now, Stephen, it's, it's uh, good to have a little bit of religion, but not too much. You're young. God wants you to enjoy yourself. Don't spoil your life by being too fanatical when it comes to Christian things. That's what Solomon says in verse uh, 18. He says, it is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. The cynic, a little bit of Christianity, and a little bit of the world, just to keep them in proportion. Go to church if you must. Go to church if it helps. Go to church if, if uh, you find some comfort in it. But don't be too serious about it. Don't be too extreme about it doesn't seem to make any difference anyway. Religiously, intellectually, look at verse uh, 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. It's good to have a little bit of understanding, a little bit of wisdom, a, lot of, a little bit of theology, because it gives you a perspective in life. It gives you influence over others. It gives you power, more powerful than ten rulers in a city. It's like people using their faith or professed Christianity to their own ends. Emotionally, he says in, in verse uh, 21, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. You speak about people. 
and they, they speak about you. Take what they say with a pinch of salt, and hopefully they'll take what you say with a pinch of salt. Pascal said, if all men knew what the other said of him, uh, there, would only, there, are, there wouldn't be four friends left in the world. Our son, on one occasion, you know, texted uh, to his girlfriend, um, why doesn't your mum like me? And he sent it to his girlfriend's mum instead of his girlfriend. You, you don't want people to know what you say, but people speak badly all the time. Just take it with a pinch of salt. You speak badly of them, and you'll speak, and they'll speak badly of you. Cynicism is basically selfish. This man's not overly wicked or overly righteous because he, he doesn't want to lose what the world offers, and he doesn't want to lose what... Um, his faith can offer. The only reason he pursues wisdom is to increase his influence, and he doesn't like to hear what people really say about him. Now, these are secular philosophies that Solomon is road-testing to explain the wickedness in the world, pessimism, escapism, and cynicism. Now, he's not commending these approaches to us. In verse 23, as we noticed, he says, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has, is, has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Uh, he's, he's taking these philosophies, he's putting them to the test to explain the wickedness in the world. With God left out of the picture, you become a pessimist, an escapist, or a cynic. But at the end of the chapter, he gives another way to understand the problem of evil and the wickedness in the world. In verse 29, he says, See this alone, I have found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. The authorized version says, sought out many inventions. In other words, God created man perfectly. He was upright, but he has gone his own way. That's how you explain the wickedness of the world. That's the reason, the explanation for evil in the world. God created man upright, but he has gone his own way. That's the realistic philosophy of life. Pessimism, escapism, cynicism, and now realism. If you're going to understand the reason for wickedness, you've got to understand something about the reality of the human heart. Although God created man upright, something went horribly wrong, and man has gone his own way. Now, Solomon came to that conclusion through his experience with his own sin particularly his own sexual sin. Look at verse 26, and I find something more bitter than death. The woman in, uh, uh, whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner, you see that? But the sinner is taken by her, by her. Solomon's weakness was for the opposite sex. Here he's thinking that he's okay, that he's not overly 
uh, righteous and he's not overly wicked, but he found his sinfulness exposed through his uh, appetite for sex. Verse 26, the sinner is taken by her, the sinner she will ensnare. You remember when David was interviewed at our guest service a few Sundays ago, he said that God put his finger on one particular sin, which was pretending to be a Christian, and he drove that sin home to his conscience to expose the wickedness of his heart. And I had a similar experience like that. Well, Solomon had a similar experience, but it wasn't lying. It wasn't a false profession. It was his sexual misdemeanors. This is his testimony, his personal testimony. Look at verse uh, 27. Behold, this is what I find, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another, find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I find, but a woman among all these I have not found. Now that seems to be a very sexist thing to say. You wouldn't get away with it today. I find one upright man among a thousand men, but among a thousand women I find not one upright. That would be terrible to say if it wasn't Solomon's experience. The Bible tells us he had a thousand wives, a thousand mistresses, a thousand lovers, and incredible though it seems to us, his harem was full. He was the playboy of the ancient world. The Bible says he ruined his life on wild horses and wild women. Now, in the whole of his harem of a thousand women, he found not one upright woman. And that's not a, a slur on women in general. It's a slur on the kind of women that agreed to be part of his harem. Because that harem was a festering mass of sin, de depravity, and sexual deviation. No self-respecting and righteous woman would ever agree to be part of it. And he couldn't find one righteous woman in those thousand women that were part of that harem. And God, through that experience, led him to see his own sin and the true condition of his heart. The sinner is taken uh, by her. There was this like addiction, this sexual addiction that he couldn't break. And that addiction exposed the sinfulness of his own heart. God made man upright, but he has gone in search of many schemes. In other words, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. God created man upright, but as Francis Schaeffer says, man now is a magnificent ruin. Man fell, and that sinful inclination remains in the heart of every individual, and that's why there's wickedness in the world. Real wisdom begins by understanding who we are. When Martin Lloyd-Jones was the assistant to Thomas, Sir Thomas Horder, the um, 
a king's physician, he was asked to classify the medical records into their respective diseases. And what Martin Lloyd-Jones found out was that 70% couldn't be classified under any particular illness. Dr. Horton had written, eats too much, drinks too much, indulges too much. That the problem was not physical, the problem was spiritual. That they had these appetites in their heart that led them to indulge in things that they shouldn't. He just put it like this. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. We have got, if we're going to make sense of, of life and make sense of the world, right at the beginning, face up to the problem of sin. That's where true wisdom is to be found. See, this alone I find, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. I know I've been there. My life was corrupted my heart was led from God. I lived in rebellion against God because I had this weakness when it came to women. But then he goes on in chapter 8. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. You see what he's saying? He says, when you discover this, that the wickedness is not out there, but the wickedness is in here, when you discover that, it makes your face shine, and the hardness of a man's face is changed. That, that a gentleness comes over him. Uh, a likableness comes over him. A sensitivity comes over him. You remember back in verse 3? Uh, verse 3, sorrow, sorrow is better than laughter, for the sadness of the face, the heart is made glad. So here's, here's the, the heart rejoicing in all the sadness and the sickness and the wickedness in the world. By the sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Oh no, no, says Solomon at the end. A man's wisdom makes his face shine. That when you discover this truth, that the problem uh, of, of, of our world lies within us, that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. What happens is that drives you to God for, for, for wisdom, for understanding, for forgiveness, for cleansing, for a relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the only one who can take away sin. That's the point. That you can escape into pessimism, into a kind of a uh, bury your head in the sand uh, philosophy, or just become downright cynical. But when you see that the problem of wickedness in the world actually lies within you, that God made man upright, but they have gone after many schemes, what happens is, when you see the depravity of your heart, that drives you to God in search of true wisdom. And it's like a, a light switched on from the inside that your face begins to shine. And you're a changed person. And the hardness is, is removed. I just, I just um, want to ask you this morning, you know, what's, what's your understanding of life? What's your philosophy of life? Why is there so much wickedness out there in the world? 
Well, the, the reason there's so much wickedness out there in the world is because there's so much wickedness in your own heart. And until that problem of sin is dealt with individually, there will always be wickedness. But when you begin to realize that the problem's not out there, that the problem's in here, that drives you to God. And it makes your face shine. And the hardness of your face is changed. Amen.